There's a growing body of evidence that illuminates just how deeply and complexly interconnected organisms are to one another. These relationships develop through evolutionary time and the everlasting arms race to survive long enough to reproduce. In this episode, we survey the battlefield, creating the context to better understand symbiosis. From photosynthetic salamanders to zombie crickets, we'll look at the bizarre, fascinating, and often disgusting relationships organisms have forged with each other. So join us as we rid ourselves of parasites, compete for resources, and exploit our neighbors. This is The Single Acorn. But first, a word from our sponsor. Quit making your music the old-fashioned way, banging around through trash cans and clattering lids on the ground. Sophisticated tastes call for sophisticated instruments. Drag mom and pop into the 21st century by picking up a little banded tiny harmonica today. Perfect for wee little hands, these minuscule music makers will bring a whole new air of refinement to casual cookouts, night prowling, or your run-of-the-mill raccoon hangout by the garbage dump. Little Bandit's tiny harmonicas. A small instrument can have a big impact. Hey there, fellow naturalists, and welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Teague, and I'm here with uh, Glenn. Hi, Teague. How you doing? Good. Good to be here with you. So, Glenn, we've met a couple times before, but I did a little bit of research for you and or research on you. And I was just finding on your bio, it said that you were an athletic trainer for the Seattle Seahawks football team. <laughs> That's right. That's actually literal. I was, you know, athletic trainer is another term for jockstrap. And I was hired <laughs> to basically hug people around the waist when they would do their calisthenics to build up their, their quads. It's not the kind of thing I talk about often. So this isn't, are we live? Just going out. Yeah, this is this is live. I, I just wanted <laughs> people to know that you, you know, you're well qualified to talk about symbiosis. Yeah, Seahawks, huh? A bird living at sea. Is that an actual thing that comes up with my name? That might be. I, you know, I've never Googled myself. I'm a little bit afraid of it. <laughs> yeah, well. But enough about my psychology. <laughs> We're gonna talk about symbiosis, uh, and yeah, so we've got Glenn, our expert on symbiosis. Uh, trained for this my whole life. Great. So you want to give us a, a working definition here of what symbiosis is? I, I did look up the etymology. This part of my you know extensive uh, research I do for our podcast. It means living with, I believe. Yeah. Symbiosis comes from that, living with with a, another. So I'm going to say it's a, it's a relationship. To, maybe it's typically applied to two organisms that have a relationship of some kind. The, the way I always heard was that they depend on each other. They help each other out. But I have heard that maybe there are other kinds of symbioses that aren't just about helping, which makes me sad, but I'm curious to know. Yeah. In your definition, you uh, talked about two different organisms. So I'm curious if you think it's about an organism in like its own individual life or if we're what we're talking about when we refer to uh, symbiosis is if we're talking about like on a species time scale so like through deep evolutionary time or over the course of a a single life i would say think of it as uh between species symbiotic relationships are typically between species but then you can see like you know a clownfish and an anemone a specific one individuals of each having their symbiotic relationship and you might be moved or touched by that so it would be so we could look at it and think maybe there are some things that have specific adaptations that they're only able to engage in these relationships because their ancestors for many many generations had done the same behaviors and so they have yeah specific adaptations that allow them to yeah I think it's more often that than a beautiful, you know, choice they've made to come together and live together, two individuals. But I'm open to that if that happens in the animal world. I'm open to appreciating that. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. I think of uh, <laughs> so symbiosis deals with relationships between uh, different organisms, whether they're plants or animals or bacteria, and. I think what separates a symbiosis from an interaction is that it is a pattern of interactions through deep time. And often the species involved have specific adaptations for coping with those interactions. But yeah, they're things that are deep evolutionary relationships that both organisms are required to invest significant amounts of energy into uh, maintaining that relationship. 
or trying to distance themselves from that relationship. And you mentioned, I think, sort of a vernacular understanding of a symbiosis is uh, synonymous with a mutualism where both organisms are cooperating, you know, walking hand in hand through this beautiful little meadow together. If they have hands. They might have hands. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I throw that out there. I, don't, I know you're a professional naturalist, but for example, clownfish don't have hands. Yeah. Clowns, clowns do, I think, have hands. Sometimes they wear gloves and it's hard to know. But I digress. Go ahead. So there's like a vernacular understanding where, you know, it's around mutualisms and things being happy and coexisting in peace and harmony together. Um, but symbiosis on sort of an ecological definition level on a broader scale is just talking about these sort of deep time evolutionary relationships. And so you could think about the interactions of being either a positive, a negative, or something that's totally neutral. And then for the other organism, the same would be true. By deep time, you mean this has been going on for a long, long period. These species have sort of co-evolved to be in this situation. Some some sort of long-term evolutionary process has led to this relationship. Yeah, and co-evolved, it's a spectrum because there, you know, some species are generalists and some are specialists. And so a symbiotic relationship between two generalists is going to be something that's really loosely formed. So neither one, in uh, if they're both generalists, are going to absolutely depend on the other organism for their long-term survival. So you can think about like a honeybee, which can visit hundreds of different species of wildflowers. They're not going to be dependent on any one in particular, but they have some adaptations that allow them to uh, engage in relationships with flowers in general. But the flowers might be totally totally dependent on honeybees, potentially. Is that correct? Yeah. Although not necessarily because uh, honeybees not being specialists themselves, the flowers, if a flower was a specialist, and so it was specifically de designed for um, a single organism, then it would want to attract only that organism and not other ones because a honeybee, which is promiscuous with sex, is going to be, or not with sex, but with flower sex, uh, <laughs> is going to be visiting a bunch of different ones. So if it lands on a dandelion right now, it might have its next visit be to an aster or something in the mint family or in the pea family. And so it's going to go from one to another without really much care. And if that flower is a specialist, like say... Um, pale jewelweed or pale touch-me-not, then that plant is going to specialize in attracting just a single single um, uh, pollinator or maybe a couple of pollinators. And then that guarantees that that pollinator, after visiting a pale touch-me-not, is going to go to another pale touch-me-not flower. And so it's like a little bit more of a specific thing. Those touch-me-nots are not promiscuous is that what you're saying which strikes me as appropriate just linguistically yeah <laughs> yeah yeah mnemonic tool yeah okay so um if you look at the flower structure of a pale touch me not it's um it's got sort of this uh deep funnel off the back of it and then this keel in the back that sort of loops around so it's got this long narrowing chamber and then at the very end of it there's uh nectar at the back of it some really rich nectar and so uh, and it's also, well, pale touch-me-nots are yellow, so they're not attracting uh, hummingbirds, but the related ones, the spotted touch-me-nots, are orange with red f uh, spots on them, and those are attracting hummingbirds. They have sort of a, a more complicated shape to them, and so they're because they're more complicated to get at the nectar, it takes a more refined or specialized structure to go after those flowers. Hmm. And are both those species of, sorry to di digress again, <laughs> maybe that's what I do. Uh, both those species of touch-me-nots are the ones that if you touch them, the seeds explode out. And... Yeah, exactly. So they have a symbiotic relationship with like school kids, perhaps. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, like a, a pretty loose relationship with school kids, but yeah, for <laughs> sure. Um, Hopefully not a promiscuous one. Right. <laughs> One more piece of terminology before we go on to talk about the different types of symbiosis. Um, there, uh, So the two different organisms that are involved in a symbiosis are called symbionts. Does that word bother you at all, symbionts? It's sort of a dystopian, futuristic cyborg. I suppose. It just sounds a little mechanical, you know, to something that's such a natural, such a, such a important part of our natural world. I don't know. That could just be me. 
Yeah, I think in the the context of this conversation, now that I feel there's, I feel there's something sinister, <laughs> but I don't think before. Uh, yeah, um, well, I'm glad I could. <laughs> yeah, turn me to the dark something side. Something beautiful, sinister. Yeah, yeah, to the dark side, Teague. Yes. All right. Looking at symbionts, there are sort of two sides of a symbiotic relationship, and both of those are called symbionts. And then when you have something like a parasitic relationship, you have uh, the host symbiont and then the parasite symbiont. Well, so we we run through the different types of symbiosis. I would love to. Great. Why not? Why not? So we could again. We have positive interactions. We have negative interactions, and we have neutral interactions. And either species involved in the symbiosis can have either one of those. So when it's paired up, where both species have a positive interaction, we have uh, what's called a mutualism, um, or what's called mutualism. And so uh, an example of this, what we talked about, pollinators. So pollinators are uh, an example of an organism that is performing a service for a flower of taking pollen from one site to another. And then, uh, which is a positive, yeah, for the poll- or for the flower. And then the positive benefit for the insect or the bird or the bat that's doing the pollination is that they're getting nectar. They don't actually, so this is one thing where with mutualisms, it's, you know, we were sort of tongue in cheek talking about them, like parading through a field, holding hands um, or flippers or whatever other uh, noodly appendage they have. And, uh, and so uh, when we talk about mutualisms in the next episode, we'll dive more into this, but a mutualism is, and maybe this is just a, a perspective, but it's one that I tend to take is that both species are trying to exploit the other one but they're exploiting each other in balance. So neither. So with uh, flowers, like a flower doesn't want to produce a ton of nectar to just hand out to every passing insect. It only wants to provide the bare minimum nectar that it can produce to make sure that it effectively gets its pollen from one flower to the other pollen or the other flower. And it's the same with like a, a bumblebee doesn't care at all. Uh, an individual bumblebee doesn't care if chicory gets flowered or not because... Um, it only cares about going after the flower that's right in front of it. It doesn't care about subsequent generations. And so they would probably rather not carry pollen if uh, if it adds weight and it adds drag to their flight. Um, so it might be a waste of energy in the long run for them, but they're both deriving benefit in the short term. And so it sustains the relationship and neither one wants to get taken advantage of but tries to get as much out of it as possible with giving as little as possible. Um, and uh, it strikes me that, I mean, in that example as well, they're both getting long-term benefit, right? Because the more flowers there are for the next generation, the better it is for the bumblebees' descendants. And then the flowers are also making sure that there's a next generation of healthy flowers by spreading their pollen around. So it seems like there's a long-term and a short-term benefit for them. Yeah, sure. And there are sort of uh, checks on uh, cheats to this system. So back to the the example of um, jewelweed with spotted jewelweed, bumblebees are big pollinators of those, and they uh, can chew little holes. So I mentioned they have this sort of long tapering tunnel. So they can come in through the side and kind of like pierce in and just get the nectar, and that's... Yeah, right, because if you have to walk down this like 100-foot-long hallway to get to a hamburger at the end... Or you can just go through the door on the side. Unless you like the attention. Maybe people are watching you walk and you like the attention. <laughs> maybe yeah, you got this long runway that you can strut down. Warm up. You're hungrier for the hamburger. Yeah. So now imagine, I, I shouldn't have said a, a hallway. I should have said like one of those car wash things with all those long things that just kind of slap side to side. So if you had to make your way through that. Even if you're really dirty, you probably don't want to clean yourself that way. No. Yeah, so mutualisms are these positive positives, uh, classic examples around like pollinators, uh, but then also once a flower has been pollinated, it produces seeds. So there are also examples of mutualisms that are around uh, seed dispersal. So um, so you know what trilliums are, I'm assuming? I do. Yeah. So they have three, three leaves. They're beautiful. Just the white ones and the purple ones, right? Yeah. Have you ever smelled a purple one? It's, it's, isn't it a little bit stanky? Like it's a uh, fly, you know, fly pollinated maybe? Yeah. So do, do you know the name for it? Yeah. It's something like stink pot. No, that's <laughs> stinking Julius. Um, Mestering Joe. I uh, can almost remember. Stinky Benjamin. 
so close. Stinky Benjamin. There you go. Yeah, so uh, Stinky Benjamin, the flowers are uh, definitely insect pollinated and uh, for flies that are going after carrion or, or rotting meat. So it's got that like stinky flower to smell to attract those pollinators. Um, so they're deceiving the pollinators into thinking that it's like a rotting carcass. Uh, but in terms of their seed dispersal, so they uh, produce these things called aleosomes, and aleo means oil, and then some means body. And so these are these fatty little oil packages that the uh, trillium attaches onto the seeds, and they are attractive to ants. And so ants will pick up the seeds, bring them back towards their colony, and then they won't eat the seeds, but they'll eat the um, the oil, oil. body. Oil. Sweet oily coating. Yeah, exactly. So uh, there are things that will cheat the system. And uh, so the mutualism is between ants and the trillium. But there are other things like slugs that will come along and they'll eat the aleosome in situ. So in the place where it fell off of the flower. And so they won't disperse it. It'll just drop right underneath. Whereas the ants will drop back to their their uh, little colony. Slug. Right. Yeah. Are there examples of slug pollinated plants or do slugs help out any or are they just taking and taking and taking? <laughs> well, everything's just taking and taking and taking. So Sometimes I are helping something else out. Uh so do you ever have you ever seen slugs feeding? Or have you ever seen sign of slugs feeding? I've seen sign of hurt. I I think I saw, I don't know if you've seen this. <clears throat> and maybe it's an essay I read and then I visualized it and I thought I saw it, but Someone was lying um, sick in bed and they couldn't move for some reason very well. And they could, but they could hear the sound of a slug eating the, the little leaves of the plant. And that kind of kept them going. Yeah, that is uh, Elizabeth something or other is her name. The sound of a wild snail eating. It's a book, really beautiful book. But yeah, so they have these things called uh, radula, which is this sort of rasping mouth part on the underside of their body that they use for scraping off material from something so if you look at a paper birch tree or you it's most obvious on paper birch but it's found on a ton of different tree species but they'll get this greenish cast where a type of algae grows on the bark and if you look closely at it you'll see these little scratch marks in it that are they kind of weave their way back and forth but it's the slugs grazing like tiny little gross cows on the algae that's growing on the bark. And you can find out a bunch of different things. Does that help the tree a bit, a little bit, like cleaning the tree? Well, it does and doesn't. Uh, so it does help the tree because the rule, not the exception, is that trees are photosynthetic. Uh, the inner bark is photosynthetic. So on the younger parts of the plant, it's uh, the algae would be blocking sunlight from reaching the inner parts. But, it helps the young. But the algae doesn't really, it takes a while for it to, to build up to sufficient levels. And by that point, the bark is usually m matured. And so it is no longer photosynthetic. So I don't think it has much of a positive or negative impact. But the other thing that I was going to mention, so that's where you can see their signs. But also in the fall, I see slug feeding sign all the time on uh, mushrooms. And... I have a hunch that they are spore dispersers for uh, different types of fungi. So the spores just get all over their skin and then they go somewhere else yeah. and they jump off. Yeah, because I mean, spores are tiny and most of them are wind dispersed, but there is also some insect dispersal of spores. And I would imagine that, you know, a tiny little... Um, like a, a, a medic russella or something, these uh, reddish ones, uh, little mushroom caps, that they're pretty close to the ground. And so if the spores drop, they're just falling near the base of the fruiting body. But if a slug comes along, it can take it, you know, tens of feet away. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so that's mutualism. Um, there are a bunch of different types. There's also another cool type that's called malarian mimicry. And this is where uh, two different species that are unrelated to each other will have similar warning patterns uh, that they... That's Mueller, like named after Mueller. Not malaria, like the disease, but Mueller. Yeah, Mueller. Mueller. Um, and... You know, Say, anything about Mueller? I know nothing about Mueller, other than he studied mimicry. <laughs> uh Sometime, I think, in the 1800s. Maybe he pretended to be other people. Maybe it wasn't even really real. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, how they named it. Yeah, so uh, this is where two things that are unrelated evolutionarily uh, take on a similar appearance to warn off potential predators. 
Like a viceroy, a monarch, maybe. Would that be? Yeah, so for the longest time, that was actually thought to be Batesian or Batesian mimicry, where Batesian mimicry is where two unrelated species take on the same appearance, but one of them doesn't have to waste any energy being toxic. And so people thought that uh, the viceroys were just mimicking monarchs so that things, predators, potential predators, would think that they were also poisonous like monarchs are. But it turns out that's not true, and viscerys are actually uh, somewhat toxic themselves. A Batesian, it was Mullerian mimicry mimicking Batesian mimicry. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, that's deep. And that's deep time. Yeah, now I have no that's idea deep what deep. we're talking about. So one of the cool <laughs> examples of Mullerian mimicry that I actually hadn't really thought about this, because I had always heard of red fall foliage in the context of plants are producing a red pigment in the fall, to its uh, anthocyanins, this pigment that protects the leaf as it's breaking down and retrieving the nutrients, uh, as the tree is retrieving the nutrients from the leaf. Taking them back in. Yeah, I always thought it was like a sunscreen type of pigment. Um, But one of the research papers that I read actually said that it's a type of malarian mimicry. We have multiple different species of trees that are doing this red flagging to aphids, that will, at, at the end of the fall, a lot of aphids are in sort of the last stages of reproduction and laying their eggs in the leaves. And so if you turn red, and some of the red colors are the earliest, like red maple is one of the earlier trees to change colors, and they turn uh, red to signal to the aphids, hey, you know what, it's been a great summer, but I'm just about done. I'm about to drop my leaves, so don't waste my time. Yeah, and it's actually something that's really effective. So looking at aphid egg production, so aphids are less likely to lay eggs on uh, red or leaves that are turning red. red. Anything red? Yeah. So the leaves, so it may not have a sunscreen feature at all. So I've been covering myself with leaves when I go to the beach for nothing. All for not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Waste of yeah, your time. It did. I have noticed I haven't gotten many aphids at the beach. Yeah. So win win. It wasn't really a waste of time. Yeah. Um, and you looked great. I've seen you out there. You look fantastic. <laughs> I look good if things, you know, unless it's windy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can sort of hide. You know, I can have some privacy at the beach, which is hard. So, uh, so yeah. So that's mutualism in terms of both organisms benefiting. Uh, then we could also look at commensalism. And so commensalisms where one organism benefits and the other just doesn't really care at all. Um, and so there are a couple of different asymmetrical interactions that we'll talk about. And commensalisms, one of them where, yeah, you typically have one that gets a great benefit. And then again, the other one barely notices. And so you could think of, um, well, back to our slugs. So when they're not grazing algae, uh, they might be grazing on uh, the defecations of other animals. And so... The animal doesn't care that something's coming along and eating its poop, but the slug gets uh, nutrients and um, occasionally, well, there are other like dung beetles in the genus Copris or uh, Onthophagus, which get not just nutrients from the dung, but they also get habitat and a place to lay their eggs. So yeah, one species benefits, the other doesn't really care at all. Um, The algae that we talked about with the slugs, the algae on the tree benefits because it gets habitat. And uh, then the tree doesn't really care um, because it doesn't it doesn't do any like structural damage to it. And most of the trees on the bark where there's algae, they're not photosynthesizing there. So it doesn't really matter all that much. And then the slug comes in and takes advantage of that, that commensalism. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know if we're doing much for slugs um, reputation so far, but we did have the spores example. I take it back. I know, but maybe so. maybe we'll do sort of one of those full circle things. So maybe people will find slugs somehow extra endearing, knowing that they're coppervores. Um, <laughs> coppervores? Yeah, coppervore. Uh, copro is uh, Greek for uh, poop, and then vor. Oh, right. I thought you meant copper, like the metal, which seemed like no, no. Hide your pennies. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I do like that. Yeah, so I just had this like hilarious image of uh, setting out pennies as slug traps like to get rid of your slugs <laughs> in your garden so we're gonna have all these confused listeners that are yeah setting pennies all over for the copper vores. <laughs> i wonder if there's a relationship i wonder if copper actually means poop it's sort of similarly colored yeah maybe and i don't know if you've ever swallowed a penny but typically eventually you do poop it out yeah 
just a thought, Tig. Something to think about for your future. A, a great experiment. <laughs> um, so enough well, but, enough talking about the positive stuff. We should dive into the negative yeah, stuff. Um, so you could also have uh, exploitation, and there are some subcategories of exploitation. So exploitation is where something is exploiting another organism, not surprisingly. Um, and so one is uh, benefits from the relationship, and then the other is harmed in some way. So the different types of exploitation that you could have are parasitism, which is uh, where an organism lives on or in another species and slowly steals away nutrients from the host. Uh, and so the host obviously is negatively impacted and the parasite benefits from the relationship. Unless they want to get rid of some nutrients. Like maybe they're they're feeling like they need to lose some weight. Like a weight loss program? Yeah, maybe. Maybe in that case it becomes mutualist. But go ahead. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's... Yeah, no, there's... Like a tapeworm. People used to joke about it. I could use a tapeworm, you know. It'd be easier than exercising. Yeah, probably don't. I think um, that's misguided. Probably not, we're probably not co-evolved. There's probably not deep time kind of relationship. Yeah, there. although I, I remember reading a long time ago that tapeworms actually... What is it? That they don't cause weight loss, but they cause nutrient deficiency... Or something like that. So it's like not. It wouldn't actually be a good way of losing weight. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for many reasons. Stuff, they're just eating stuff, and they're still in you. They're not. It doesn't. It's not going anywhere. It's just going into the worm. It's still in you. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that there's a conservation of mass type thing going on there. <clears throat> it's not an experiment I want to carry out. Like, I'm not going to talk my son into doing this for science fair. Yeah, it sounds like a great PhD yeah. for someone out there. <laughs> So parasites, uh, when they parasitize a host, they don't actually want to kill the host because often they're living on the host or in the host for a prolonged period of time and they depend on it for uh, either the early stages of their growth and development or for their final stage of development where they're uh, reproducing sexually. And so parasites typically don't kill the host, but occasionally there are parasitoids, which are similar to parasites where they're smaller than the thing that they eat, um, and they have a similar life cycle, but uh, in the end, they wind up killing the host. And there are a whole bunch of different types of wasps that will lay their eggs in other species, and then those, uh, and, and then the larval stage will slowly feed on the internal and organs. Burst out and then they'll burst out. And it's horrendous. Yeah, and when they burst out, they wind up killing the host. So it's a sort of a dead-end thing. So this is maybe more like predation, which is the uh, the third type of exploitation, where predation typically involves a larger, uh, well, when it's a carnivore, a larger species going after and eating a smaller prey animal. Um, really? It's about size. So you can have like a little fierce little weasel eating a big bird. If they're smaller, then well, weasels, it's not a classic we predator. Weasels are incredible. So um, yeah, so predation, we typically think of a larger animal eating a smaller animal, unless it's an herbivore, and then you could have uh, an aphid eating a tree, um, although that would be a parasite, um, but maybe like a beaver eating an aspen tree. Um, but with, wait, what was the example you just gave or the question? I was just wondering, you know, if it's a small predator eating a big animal, you know, taking down a big animal. Oh, weasels, like weasels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so weasels can hunt uh, things that are like 10 times their size. So you could have a small little pound uh, weasel that eats a rabbit or something larger than that. Um, and so, yeah, so weasels are capable of taking down things bigger than themselves. Uh, occasionally, um, so I'm in Burlington, Vermont, and in the natural area next to my house, there was a deer that got taken down by a bobcat. And so with bobcats, they can take down something that's like eight times their size. So there are predators that can take down things that are larger than them. Typically, that weasel, doesn't the record, Just do you know, I mean, you had 10 times for the weasel, eight times for the bobcat, which are impressively precise statistics. Do you know what the the biggest factor would be for a predator? Like you know, what, 30 times its size, yeah, typically. If I had a guess, I would probably say it's a type of insect or something that can paralyze its prey. So like a spider or something. There actually are spiders that build webs large enough to take birds. Um, so oh my God. it might be 
It might be something like that, where it's like totally uh, asymmetric. Like a human killing a whale, basically. Yeah, exactly. And it's only able to do that because, yeah, like, I mean, you just gave the example of a human taking a whale, which actually that would <laughs> that would probably that be your win. answer. Win. I was just really wondering, yeah, do we win? Yeah, but we do yeah. that because we have tools. And yes. so the spider has a web or web. A venom or it's something a like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so with predation, um, yeah, you can have herbivores, you can have carnivores, uh, and there are a whole bunch of different ways. And again, when we talk about predation in uh, a few episodes, we'll talk about the different strategies for hunting and then also the strategies for not being hunted. Um, Will there be tips on that for people in terms of being hunted or not being hunted? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, biomimicry. We'll talk a lot about that. Um, uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, why not learn just, from the animals? Actually, there's so I've just got a situation I got to deal with. Yeah, it would help you help for me. Yeah, we'll help you. Okay, out. go ahead. Well, one talk of the one of the examples that I was going to give for this in terms of uh, carnivores is uh, a type of spider called an ant mimic. And um, there are a, a few different types of uh, species that will do this, but with ant mimics, which are spiders, they look really, really similar to ants. And so they will be able to infiltrate an ant colony and, um, and then they'll and then slowly wipe work. it out. Uh, so that's sort of a, a form of mimicry to, yeah, subvert. It's like a murder mystery. They start disappearing one at a time. It's like, <laughs> it's one of us. One of us is not an ant. Yeah, and then there's... they don't realize it's the one that's getting bigger and bigger, or just has all the ant parts you know, around its mouth. Right, like this super awkward wolf standing there with the sheepskin <laughs> over it. Like, well, it wasn't yeah, me. It's like all bloody, and yeah, it's just getting bigger and bloated. Yeah, it doesn't make the right sounds. So uh, the last two are um, well, yeah. So competition uh, would be our next one. So we talked about exploitation, which is positive negative, and then competition is where both species are negatively impacted by the interaction. Both are negative in competition. Wow. Because you hear about, this is with my child again, typically I'd respond to things just thinking about as a parent. Sorry, that's my who I am right now, but he's been told a lot, competition, you know, it's good for kids, brings out the best in them, makes them stronger, but sounds like scientifically not so much. We're externally motivated by metals. Uh, I know certainly I am for... Uh, all the running races that I compete in. Um, <laughs> but, and I think if I didn't have access to those medals, the, the drive to compete would go down significantly. Uh, the better part of me would not like to admit that, but. Um, <laughs> well, that was nice and vulnerable of you to admit oh, that. Thanks. On this yeah. podcast with yeah, this one million listeners. Really a therapy session for me. So. Well, no, okay. So sorry to interrupt, but would competition in the long run potentially benefit the species that are competing by you know, making the stronger ones kind of survive and have stronger offspring and be able to do other things that when they're not competing with this other species? Yeah, I've, th I've thought about this. I mean, I think you could make an argument where, um, so there's a book uh, by Farley Moat called Never Cry Wolf. He was hired by the Canadian government to go up uh into these remote parts of Canada and study um, wolf. Oh boy, is it wolf uh, elk? I think it's wolf elk. Uh, caribou? caribou. Caribou, maybe one of those, some big deer uh, family species. And so he was hired to go up and just say that wolves are bad for them and the wolves should all be killed. And what he wound up finding was that um, the wolves actually, so they don't just kill indiscriminately. They selectively go after the easiest. So everything's lazy, as lazy it can be to be able to survive. And so if you had the option. That makes me feel so much right there. That, that just made yeah, my justify, day. It justifies <laughs> a lot of our existence. behaviors. Yeah. Um, I'm just doing what comes naturally. Yeah. And uh, and so with, with the wolves, they were being as lazy as possible and going after the largest, um, or not the largest, the smallest and the, the weakest of the available uh, things to hunt. And so um, by having a predator around, it actually increases the overall health of the prey animals. Yeah, and, and there is an argument, because this is what I think about, like, well, if you just got rid of all the predators or all the parasites then you would just have a larger population size um and that would probably be better for this species even if on the whole individuals were less healthy so in terms of biomass your success would be greater but in terms of individual 
reproductive success and health it might be less and if a beneficial. big plague came through for example you might potentially i'm saying yeah you might all get that instead of having a few yeah know, super so certainly on an ecosystem level competition increases biodiversity so not everything is equally good for like if you had a, a pile of bread out um and everything or you could look at your bird feeder so if you look at your bird feeder it's not equal which species can dominate the bird feeder. Some species are more aggressive than others, and certainly some individuals within species are more aggressive. And so given um, just like uh, straight competition, then certain species might be way better at competing. And so you would expect in long term, if competition was the only limiting factor, the best things at competing would just overrun everything else. But often what happens is there's some other balance that comes in, like a predator that is maybe more geared towards going after the more competitive species. So uh, the classic example in ecology is looking at sea otters and sea urchins and kelp forests. So sea urchins are really good at grazing on kelp, and in the absence of sea otters, sea urchin populations would go way up. They would outcompete everything else in the area. They would decimate the kelp forests. And when they hunted the sea otters, it was bad, right? Yeah, kelp forest. Exactly. Kelp yeah. And one of the problems now is with toxoplasmosis, which is a, uh, like the crazy cat lady the cat parasite. Cat yeah. Uh, so that species of, or that parasite has gone into the water from cat poop in San Francisco, uh, washing into the ocean, the sea and sea otters have started to contract uh, this disease. And with cats, and now it's... they want to own cats. And now they, the sea otters... own... yeah. And so they're <laughs> how would they really own cats? Practically, I guess they could have them. The sea otters can bask on land, right? Yeah, so they, they have could... trash rafts that they just float around these little populations little of kittens. cats on. Um... It's cute. There should be videos about that. They should, you know, in general, I think they should. I don't know, maybe make a, some videos about cats on the internet. I think people would want to watch that. I don't know if anyone's thought of that. Maybe if this podcast doesn't take off, then we can just, yeah, we can start, uh, yeah, this yeah, new trend of cat videos online. If it's not being done. It's not being done so much. Certainly not for sea otters. So maybe we could just have a really niche market. <laughs> so uh, sea, or sea urchins on their own, left to their own devices, are way better at competing than other species, and they're way better at exploiting kelp than other species. But if you have sea otters in the mix, then the, uh, the predation on sea urchins limits their population grow- growth and it allows other species to have a competitive advantage where they wouldn't otherwise. So competition is kind of this weird thing. I was talking about it in terms of predation, but competition might be good, but good for the might also be... Good for the whole community. Yeah, I mean, if competition is intense enough, then a species has to dedicate energy and time into developing strategies to cope with their competition. And anytime you're spending energy on one thing, that prevents you from spending energy on another thing. So it prevents you from spending energy on reproduction or growth or development um, or some other, yeah, mechanism for coping with your environment. So I don't know. Yeah, competition might be better for biodiversity, but probably not better for individuals and for an individual species. Hmm. Well, I'll have to break the news to my son that what he's doing is not good for him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Tink. Sorry, Finn. It's going to be a hard conversation, but yeah, for his sake. Uh, competition can also be uh, like your son competing uh, against other uh, people is uh, intra-specific. So intro means within and then specific means within your species. species. Yeah. Um, people sometimes compete with other species, you know, like race race a cow she usually wins for example yeah so that would be interspecific as much as possible with competition you want to avoid direct competition so you can avoid so competition occurs because there's some limiting resource we're not competing for access to oxygen aquatic species might be but for us in terrestrial environments oxygen is not a limiting yeah ideal is not a limiting factor Um, So when there is a limiting resource, so say food, so say there's a walnut tree that uh, the nuts that it produces in the fall, there's a finite amount of them. And so species are going to be competing for that resource. 
and uh, they'll have to find different ways of avoiding direct competition. So I have a black walnut, that's why I use this example in my backyard. And during the day, I have gray squirrels and red squirrels, and they actually will spend time in direct conflict with each other, uh, harassing each other, chasing each other. The red squirrels are super aggressive and terrible. Usually when they're aggressive, right? Even though they're smaller. Yeah. Yeah, they're almost half the size and, yeah, twice the fight. Like weasels. They're like the weasels of the squirrel world, oh, we totally. might say. Um, and so they fight during the day, and then at night, the you know, the sun sets, it gets dark, and the gray squirrels and red squirrels retreat to their uh, their little drays. And uh, possums? Is this coming back to possums? Uh, I wish. No. Um, the slugs? So, uh, no, it comes back to I, I'm using this example because they're closely related. So, what is a, a nocturnal squirrel? A skunk. No, a groundhog. A, a groundhog? Uh, flying squirrel. Flying squirrel. Yeah, groundhogs are squirrels, but they're diurnal. Uh, yeah, flying squirrels are nocturnal. So, at night, the gray squirrels and red squirrels go to sleep and then the flying squirrels come out and they feed at night. So they avoid direct competition with similar uh, species that occupy a similar niche by just being active at a different time of day. So it's a way of avoiding competition. Um, for intraspecific, uh, sexual dimorphism is a really great way of avoiding competition. So uh, not every species has uh, sexual dimorphism, but you see it really prominently in hawks. And so the females and hawks, I guess this is, yeah, this is the the sexist bent of ecologists. So instead of calling it when the female is bigger, instead of calling it sexual divorce, dimorphism, do you know the name for it? Um, sexual, um, disturb, disturbing sexual dominance. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> males have called that. No, it's called re reverse sexual. So it's not as reverse. fancy, but it's reverse sexual That's dimorphism. Most of my relationships, yeah, yeah, the women have been, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so they, so sexual dimorphism. Some of it is just is, uh, for sexual selection purposes. So, if you have um, what are called uh, uh, tournament species, and so tournaments, Tournament? yeah, tournament species are species that the males fight for access uh, to reproduction. Like two sheep, like two rams ramming each other. Yeah, exactly. And so in tournament species, you have really strong sexual dimorphism. And so you have adaptations where the males are larger, they're more aggressive, combative, uh, and then often have some feature for fighting. So horns or antlers or tusks. Um, and then with, uh, with hawks, they have reverse sexual dimorphism. And so it's not a sexual selection thing in terms of the males being selected for being larger for comp uh, fighting against each other. Um, but you have sexual dimorphism so that there's one possible suggestion is that the females sit on the nest and uh, crows and ravens are nest robbers. And so yeah. And so having a larger female sitting on the nest might. Wouldn't that be true of like any bird, basically, that if you have a bigger one on the nest, you can fight off the predators better? Yeah, uh, and and with birds, there actually is. Uh, it's not just in the the um, the hawks that you have reverse sexual dimorphism. I mean, it's not a universal characteristic, but it is one strategy that can allow you to cope with a having to fight off things in that might rob your nest, but also b the cost of egg production is huge, and so if you're larger, you have more energy stores available to you. Uh, the other yeah. thing, so weasels have really strong sexual dimorphism but it's where males are larger and it's not about this like tournament species, uh, but instead it's, so if you have males and females that don't overlap in size, then they can eat really different sized prey. So they're not competing. So again, this is about competition. And so they're not I heard it, competing with each other for the same resources. But potentially, maybe this is not true what I heard. Maybe this is a terrible metaphor for something, but I heard that, um, different members of the weasel family, the females are smaller, and so they can make their, their holes where they have their babies small enough where the males can't get in because otherwise the males would come in and just try to eat eat the babies, basically. I haven't heard that, but that makes a lot of sense. Uh, infanticide is, yeah, definitely a problem. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm, nature. All right, so we got one more. We got one, okay, one more. One Sorry. more. Last yeah. one. Here no, we go. Yeah. No, I, I could do 10 more. <laughs> Unfortunately, but... you technically can't do 10 more because there's only one more type of. Make up some. <laughs> yeah, well, Maybe we'll discover some. We don't know. Science goes on. 
science may discover symbiosis in the fourth dimension <laughs> wow also that yeah so the last one is a mentalism and i save this for last because it's probably the least important um I don't know if, if that's true, it's but like a value judgment. it's, yeah, but. it's definitely a value judgment because I really just couldn't care less about it. Um, <laughs> so amensalism is, can be described as like asymmetric competition. So one species is so much better than the other species that it doesn't even notice that it's competing with the other species. Um, and uh, so often this is like a, a size thing where maybe you have... It's insignificant. You don't even notice that... Yeah, like imagine a giraffe comes along and with its you know long black tongue, it latches onto a branch and rips off the branch and then eats, uh, eats the entire branch just whole. And so that would be an example where there might be another species or uh, dozens of other species that are living on that branch that are feeding on it and they're competing for this resource but then with the giraffe but the giraffe has no idea and it just eats the whole thing and is way better at competing for that particular resource um so that's yeah. one type of thing where it's like super asymmetric competition uh the other uh type of amensalism would be like if you're walking on grass or you step on a plant or something like that um this is more on the uh, side of like an interaction where it's just sort of a one-off interaction and it's not necessarily a relationship that's evolved over time. Another example that's sometimes given as an amensalism, uh, but this to me feels more like competition where there actually is a negative impact on both species, but uh, you have something called allelopathy and allelopathy is where a plant produces a some sort of molecule uh, that it secretes into the soil uh, either through its roots or when its leaves fall and start to decompose and the uh, whatever chemical it's releasing is allelopathic and so it will uh, prevent the development or growth of other plant species like black walnut does it do that black walnut, walnut is great and it's a nightmare to grow uh, my apple trees and all the things in the rose family they all uh, just, just die, right? yeah, they really struggle and I keep planting them. <laughs> so I'm a little bit st stubborn. Are you ever tempted to just take it out? The walnut? I mean, cause you, you seem like a person who loves all trees, but there's, a, you have this one master tree keeping other. I know. Other I, th I think I'm waiting for my retirement so that I can, I can sell it. There are all these cases of, uh, people that sneak into uh, protected wooded areas or town forests or something like that. This is down in like Missouri and Kansas. And they'll, in the middle of the night, cut down black walnut trees and they'll steal them for selling for lumber. So they're super, super expensive. So I've been like, I kind of pruned this one a little bit when I was younger. And this is going to be my, my retirement is a bunch of veneer. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm not going to cut it down yet. Maybe all of, I'll just break even in the end with all the money that I've spent planting fruit trees. This is like a temporarily symbiotic. This strikes me as a relationship where it's temporarily symbiotic. It gives you peace of mind. I mean, obviously, this isn't a maybe a pattern evolved through deep time, but just just as an example. With me and the walnut, or the you and the walnut tree. Yeah, you're getting peace. So you're you're keeping. You know, you're not cutting it down. You're protecting it. But eventually, you're just gonna cut it down and use it for your own purposes. And I'm guessing there's some relationships like that in nature where. It appears to be mutual, but in the end. I think, I mean, every domestic animal is probably that way, where it's like a fine line between mutualism and exploitation. So we breed animals and then kill them and eat them. Not all the animals that get bred get to reproduce. So the end goal of being alive is reproduction. Um, and which is maybe a narrow view of what life is. Um uh, I feel better about myself now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can cross that off your bucket list. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, so with, with domestic animals, like in terms of biomass, if you are a domestic animal, you have won the evolutionary lottery because you're, you have such hugely overrepresented amount of biomass relative to what you would have had historically. Um, and so chickens, pigs, cows, all that. Um, and so they uh, don't all get to reproduce though. So, they are collectively very populous, but individually their genes aren't necessarily getting passed on. So it's sort of this weird thing where it's like kind of a mutualism because 
they absolutely depend on us for survival, for habitat, um, for food, shelter, all that. Um, and then we depend on them for uh, food source. Um, and we both have specific adaptations for uh, dealing with, I don't know that we necessarily have specific adaptations for coping with chickens, <laughs> um, but uh, chickens have adaptations that we've artificially selected for. So, you know, laying eggs almost every day, not being uh, broody, so not sitting on their uh, eggs for prolonged periods of time. If you actually look at, like, in Hawaii, there are feral chicken populations, and they've regressed back to a wild type, and so they lay eggs less frequently. They're more broody, so they'll actually sit on their nests, and, um, yeah, so they have more wild babies. Is that where the term brooding comes from? Yeah. From just... Well, brood is like a, a... a clutch um right yeah when we say someone's brooding we're like they're kind of deep in thought they're kind of um feeling a bit you know negative down yeah probably probably shares in etymology or etymological roots something that research yeah sun science um cool so uh i think i mean that covers them so uh yeah we ran through positive positive would be mutualism uh positive neutral commensalism exploitation is positive for one negative for the other and they're parasitic relationships parasitoids and predation and then competition both things are harmed and then amensalism where one's harmed and the other doesn't really care didn't notice didn't notice that was a sad one that is a sad one it is i think it's good to say <laughs> it's sad because on a melancholy note. yeah because one is just like oh you so kill me and the other one just has no idea that it's just broken their I heart let's hope that doesn't happen to us mm-hmm overlords type scenario yeah. don't they at least notice before they wipe us out that's all i ask yeah <laughs> that's things i think about well yeah so i think that that's a good place to wrap up there with our discussion of uh symbiosis on the whole and what we'll do over the next uh few episodes for this season is we'll dive into each one of those in more depth and we'll provide a framework for yeah thinking about each of the different types of uh symbiosis so that's, that's great yeah Thanks for sharing your knowledge with me. Yeah, thanks for sharing your questions and weird stories. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to our next one. So cool. All right, we'll out. see. We'll see you on the next episode then. All right then. Bye bye. Bye. Whether you're a mutualist, predator, parasite, or competitor, we appreciate you joining us on our journey down symbiosis lane. Coming up in the next episode, we'll keep it upbeat and narrow our attention towards those symbionts with a more magnanimous bent mutualists. Until then, if you're digging the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also head over to crowspath.org for archived episodes, online natural history programs, and lots and lots of content. All right, naturalists, that's it for now. We'll see you next time on The Single Acorn.